Welcome to Ben Navarra's podcast with your host, Ben Navarra's. Howdy guys, and welcome back. So today we have Jason from the Strength Guys today. And so the Strength Guys are a group of coaches in the powerlifting community, and I'm sure if you're not a powerlifter, you can you can still get their expertise in the strength conditioning world. And um, but my goal today, and and what I kind of want to learn about who Jason is, and and what he's been doing, and and his role in the strength guys uh, as one of their coaches. So, Jason, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate this. And so, Jason, go ahead and describe to me a little bit about. Yes, where you started with the Strength Guys. Yeah. Um, so I started the Strength Guys when I was uh, 19. Um, I just finished my first university uh, education, uh, which got me the title of Personal Fitness Trainer Certificate from uh, Mount Royal University in Calgary, Alberta. And I decided that I wanted to go back to school to pursue more knowledge in the area. Um but I had to I had to take chemistry and advanced math. I didn't take those in high school, so it just kind of felt like a, a wasted year because I was taking what I really should have taken in high school. And um, so I, I partnered up with a, a buddy of mine from the personal fitness trainer program uh, named Anthony Walker, and um, we we kind of just agreed that we wanted to uh, network on Twitter, which was quite popular at that time um in the in the strength and conditioning community while well, we got our kinesiology degrees so i just started putting out uh information every day for for a year uh we, di- we didn't we never sought out to become an online coaching company or anything like that but uh after about you know 10 or 11 months of tweeting thoughts every day uh we got a, a decent following and people started requesting um online programming from us. So uh, the first few, we said no. And then uh, we realized that there was a business opportunity here. So we started saying yes. Um, For the first four years of my career, I primarily worked in uh, natural bodybuilding. Um, And then I would say for the the next uh, two to three years of my career, it was actually a really rough time in our company. Uh, I considered folding it, but um, I I did numerous internships in strength and conditioning under um, Brett Bartholomew, uh, Daniel Noble, uh, and Ryan Van Aston of the uh, Calgary Flames. Um, and also, I was transitioning into coaching uh, more powerlifting. Um, so... Since then, uh, for the past three years, I've been doing this for 11 years. That's how long we've been in business for as well. Uh, we really become a, a highly specialized group that works with powerlifters. And uh, lately, we have assembled a support team of um, yeah. physical therapists, uh, sports psychology background. We call it mental skills coaching, uh, biomechanics experts, uh, exercise physiology experts, uh, basically everything that we think uh, an elite level powerlifter could need to take their uh, game to the next level, and so that's where we are today. 
you guys have created almost a one-stop shop kind of idea within the powerlifting community. It's kind of insane and, and really cool to see from seeing the seeing the sport grow from something so, so small and then seeing what you guys are doing and where it's going to continue to grow towards. You're, you're creating a an entire community and an environment that's going to, that's good for performance. And then you're specializing in high performance, but then because you have such a wide variety of, of skills and, and background, you're not only able to help that like elite level power lifter, you're also able to help somebody just who's coming in and wants to learn how to deal with it. And then as they progress in their own performance and, and professionalism, then you have the tools or the resources within your community that, you can guide them to if so needed, right? If, if they're yeah. needing to help with, with a physical therapy, you know, route, I saw you have two doctors of physical therapy on the, on the team. Um, then you, you know, it's, it's all right there for them. I mean, you're, you're creating a beautiful thing for any elite level or beginner athlete. Yeah. Um, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I really, well, I got the idea from when I was, uh, with the Calgary flames NHL team. Um, I spent the 2021 season, uh, with the team, uh, it was inside their COVID bubble. Um, and I got to see how the medical team and, uh, hockey operations, all of that, the equipment staff, the, the strength staff, um, the, um, staff who are making the meals for the players, the, um, director of, uh, hockey operations, who's booking all the flights and hotels and everything. I got to see the interplay of all that. And I thought that this could be um, a big advantage for our team. And since we've hired expertise uh, with Alyssa Parton in um, exercise physiology, uh, Charlotte Videl in biomechanics, and Dominic Violi and Emily Snee in physical therapy, and Brittany Russell in sports psychology, I feel like we've become like kind of the, the best team that you could be with as a young coach wanting to grow in the profession. Because uh, if you get a specialized scenario that you've never worked with before, you have a question, there's just so many people with domain specific knowledge who can help you. Um, and it's been really nice to work in this. I, I feel very fortunate and, and very spoiled to uh, be able to pick the brains of so many smart team members. How, how often do you guys meet as a team? Do you guys have a, as a central hub or do you, are you, is everybody separated? Yeah, we, we have a bunch of uh, group chats for ask for help or news or, or general. And uh, those are generally going seven days a week on, uh, on something. So, And how many different um, – so if, if, I'm a, if I'm a new client and I'm going to ask for your service, I know you have a lot of different coaches. How does somebody get – placed with or select a specific coach yeah um our our group is is fortunately doing quite well so uh, many of our coaches are uh, currently at their perceived limit of um, how many clients they think they can work with while maintaining quality um so by virtue of that it kind of eliminates some of the coaches from the question um Second, if, if a client wants to train with our group, they're welcome to request a coach, right? Always welcome to do that. And um, if someone doesn't request a coach, then what I do is I, I read through their form, I interpret their information, and then I try to match them with the coach who 
I think is going to best fit them, whether that's on a, a personality level, whether that's on a performance level, or it's like a geographical location. Because uh, we have coaches in Europe, uh, in Singapore, uh, Canada, and uh, USA, and now Great Britain as well. So, um, you know, we have people in, in your section of the globe, hopefully. You, you guys are dominating this field. I mean, you guys are all over the world. I mean, that, that's for, for any... I always had this perception of, of the coaching community and how it was, especially in the strength world, it was so difficult to get up and running. And then to it, it never seemed real for it to be a large organization. I just ne- I never saw the way it could happen. But I mean, you, you're in the middle of doing all of it, man. It's so cool. Uh, yeah, thank you. I, I think um, Renaissance periodization did it really well. And I, I think that uh, Stronger by Science with Greg Knuckles, uh, Team 3DMJ, uh, Reactive Training Systems, uh, Juggernaut. I think these are all teams that have kind of come before us in uh, building a really big ecosystem and infrastructure. And um, probably the way that we're doing it is is unique uh, based on based on our vision. But uh, yeah, it definitely it feels like we are actively taking steps towards the way that I feel powerlifting coaching should be, which is very professional. Um, and the sport is growing so much that um, I, I don't think we're dominating. I, I think we're doing very well. I, I think a lot of people are doing very well um, just because powerlifting is at that level now, which is super cool and it's super exciting for the future. And so my, my perception of a domination or what, what I mean by you guys dominating is I can see navigating your website, the level of professionalism, keeping a high standard of coaches is, it, I think it, it doesn't matter the, 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 the amount of, of growth necessarily. It's just like the opportunity for growth. And I think that the way that we create that is by having the highest quality product possible, right? That's in any yeah. field. It, it might not look... Like it's growing so fast, but you know what? It's we have the highest standard of stuff, and because of that, and we have the highest quality of people around us. Because of that, we will get there. Whether yeah. you know it takes us five or ten or fifteen years, we're thinking long term, right? And so, what is what is the long term vision of the strength guys? Yeah, um, right now, I'm working on um, improving our services. So. I already redesigned our nutrition service uh, where we have um, three registered dietitians who are helping to lead that. Um, and now we're redesigning our training service. And, um, to At the tail end of 2022, um, I, I feel that we had a few difficult consultations. And I think as a coach, um, it's okay to admit that you don't have the answer uh, or um, to, to lose a client only under the, the circumstance that you're going to learn from why this happened and, and solve it for next time. So we had a, we had a few difficult consultations and um, it didn't sit well with, with any of us. We knew that we had to um, find out what we were doing uh, and what we were doing wrong and, and what we could do better. Um, so we conducted a, an interview process where we um, 
talked to numerous uh, experts in the field, uh, asked them just for their criticisms of our training approach, uh, how they see the problem of, of improving performance, um, and just kind of doing our research on how we could align with current best practices again. And um, do you yeah, mind if I, I sorry? Do you, mind if I, do you mind if I ask you what that difficult situation was? Um, I, I so I, I can't disclose too much about um, yeah client consultation. I, I think that has to be private. But yeah, basically, um, I, I feel that our our style of training was not matching up with. Uh, numerous high-level individuals who had um, signed up in our group. Um, it's still working for for many uh, good athletes, but it wasn't working for these people. And um, so I think that we had to make some changes so that we can get it to work for these people in the future. I think that a lot of I mean, new coaches, especially online coaches, they, it's a, it, I think it's a very difficult form of, of art and science to combine and then execute very well because there's a lot of there's a lot of factors involved right we, we have this athlete who you don't really get to track all the time that you're not there with that you can't give immediate feedback with and we know that giving that immediate feedback saying you know either changing the the weight on a on a squat or watching somebody you know they're trying to hit a set of triples and you see their first rep and you're like, well, maybe let's go ahead and let's go ahead and cut back. Let's not do those second two. Let's go ahead and cut back the weight and then make that change. You don't have that, that opportunity as an online coach. Yeah. So I think the, the opportunity that you have as, as the, the jazz Jason is, you know, a lot of new coaches are coming into this field, get to learn from, from our mistakes and from our, and our successes. Right. And so I think it's, it's important for other people to realize that even, even people that are on this, this large platform or have this large amount of experience still experience issues and then, and then how they navigate that the solution to that issue. Right. And you guys didn't yeah. just back down, but you guys ended up, you know, talking to other people so like what what steps did you take um following this this um this interaction that that made y'all better yeah um so first step you you just listen to what people have to say even if you don't like hearing it um i think that was an important part for us from there um our our process was to consider the criticisms that we received from the experts that we've uh, interviewed and to break down every aspect of our training approach um, and also approach to communicating with clients and all of it. And if we can't make a strong argument that what we're doing is the best practice for each component, then we have to do something better. What is the best practice and how can we implement that? So um, this is the, the system of upgrades that we're making to our training system right now. I think in the grand spectrum of things, it's, it's pretty small um, upgrades because uh, obviously we wouldn't have a positive reputation if we were doing bad uh, with everyone all of the time. You know what I mean? Um, we've, we've done many good things with many people too. Um, but things like having more flexibility in the training, um, having 
using systems to help athletes make better decisions, um, being less specific with training when we don't need to be so specific, um, stuff like this changes that we're making, um, maybe biasing training towards more intensity instead of more volume now. Um, so yeah. That, that seems to be the trend. I think now like everyone's moving to this very short four week cycles with high intensity. And then, you know, you constantly reset. It's a very high rate of return. And how do you feel that that high rate of return and that, that high intensity is going to be able to maintain an athlete? Um, I, I, I don't see training in four week blocks. Um, I don't support that idea. Um, it is very common, but I see training as a fluid process where from one mesocycle to the next, there's very small but meaningful differences. So um, I think there's still a range of different qualities that need to be developed for powerlifters to perform well, right? You need to, um, you need to achieve hypertrophy at some level because you need to have more contractile proteins, I think, to have a greater force production capacity in the future. Um, you need to have a good work capacity so that you could perform, recover from, and adapt to hard training. And so I think that if we never include training that has higher volumes uh, at lower to moderate intensities, uh, to challenge for these adaptations, then I think we're limiting long-term progress. And I, I think this is discussed by the um, Dr. Pack, um, who did his research on the minimum effective dose of, of training required to increase strength in power lifters. He did his PhD on it. And he said, you know, these are the results, very positive. You know, people are getting stronger with two to eight sets per week on main lifts. Um, but it's not a long-term development system. And when we talk to other experts in our interview process, they say the same thing too. So we're like, good, we're on the same page. It's, we have to develop hypertrophy and work capacity. And we also have to, uh, train with, with higher volumes over time to stimulate progressive overload and develop new strength at higher intensities. And then... You have your peaking too. And I, I think um, the paradigm of, of training right now, and, and this is all important. Um, I, I just think that our, our hypothesis of training is that if, if, if wellness and readiness are sufficient, there's a specific dose of volume and intensity that's required for you to increase strength. And that dose must go up over time unless you've, had some change in your sensitivity to training because maybe all you're doing is eating, sleeping, and breathing training now, and you have no stress, or maybe because you gained weight, or maybe because you lost weight, right? That changes the equation. And I, I think the if I could just kind of like archetype or stereotype the hypothesis that I see right now, it's that if you manage fatigue well across those blocks, you're going to hit a PR at the end of the block. And um, I think that's primarily talking about expressing strength. You need to 
be able to recover to express your maximum strength and and hit PRs. And I, I think too much of a focus on recovery during the training process will limit long-term development. So um, we focus on all these things. We think they're all important. I think we just see the problem a little bit differently. That is a little bit different. I think, I mean, recovery seems to be a very important piece of the puzzle, right? I mean, if, if my, my master's focus on athlete monitoring, so we focus on trying to look at what is the, the maximum dose or the, I guess the, the, the appropriate dosage um, that I can get the maximum result for a long period of time. And so we were looking specifically at weightlifters rather than in powerlifters because the, the head exercise physiologist and the guy who ran the program was the, the head exercise physiologist for Team USA, Dr. Mike Stone. And yeah. and so he looks at periodization overall and, and how it's, it's structured. And so I've always been focused on looking at making sure my athlete can recover for the next training session because if I've written a program well enough that it creates a lot of stimulation, but not so much to the point where we're starting to have damage and we can't recover, then we're making progress. So how mm-hmm. do you guys perceive that differently? Um, yeah. So we're just not that focused on hitting all time PRs, uh, what seems to be throughout the entire training process. Uh, we're saving that for, Midday. Competition phase, or maybe yeah. if you've made a lot of progress um, later on in a competition prep macro cycle, not necessarily in the competition phase, but maybe you'll end up hitting a three rep PR that you've never done before, or a volume PR, and that will kind of lead the way for later PRs. Um, I think maybe there's been a big influence of social media and powerlifting too. Um, <laughs> it's maybe the lifters who aren't able to post top sets, but value social media and the community on online feel like they're falling behind now because their competitors hitting PRs eight weeks out and they're just training. Right. So I I think there's different pressures at play. Um, But yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree that recovery is important. You're not going to perform well if, if you're not, adequately recovered at least and uh, if you're not performing well then you're probably not going to improve your performance so uh, logically all of that makes sense but the the perception is not so short-term it is more long-term which is ultimately that we're training for meet day it doesn't matter if we're hitting a top set single and a new pr four or five weeks out it, it that, that's real cool, right? But if, if we're not timing that appropriately, by the time you get to meet day, then that that PR that you were expecting to hit on maybe a second attempt is now uh, a, a nine and a half RPE and you're not going to be able to take a third. So then what was the point of hitting it four weeks out, right? So it yeah. seems like you guys are, are fairly, I mean, it makes logical sense. Like we're, we're, not, we're not trying, and I guess it does look good when you have a group of people around you and you're in the gym and you're, you have social and and social media is so impactful and you can grow this audience that you, you know, you want to take these videos and then post them and and you can share with all your friends. But ultimately when you get to meet day, it's, there's an injury or, you you know, there, there's something else that's, that's not uh, lined up for ultimately what you're training for. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I would say also like when we do, go for a really heavy top set or an AMRAP set. It's done very strategically because we're 
trying to figure out something about where the athlete's strength level is so that we can plan our strategy for their meet or and, or for the remaining weeks of, of competition prep leading into the meet. So um, I think our reasons for doing this um, may be a bit more strategic than the norm, but it's, it's so hard to speak against what's general too, right? I know I'm just stereotyping everyone on Instagram right now who does top sets every week. And yeah, but um, it just seems crazy to see. I mean, I've been out of the the community for a little bit and when I, when I'm, I'm still watching everybody, right. I'm, I'm just watching from, from behind the scenes now and I see people hitting just insane sets week by week. And it just doesn't seem sustainable in terms of recovery and injury f- to me. And I, I like that you guys have this, this this logical strategic approach i think which is there is a science to this and there's a lot of research to support the reason that we do these things it is not for just the instagram post it is for performance and if our goal is to win and our and our goal is to be our best selves on that platform then there is a structured game plan to get there i like that a lot yeah yeah um just trying to give our clients all the advantages possible to succeed at the end of the day. Right. And, um, how different coaches see that problem is, you know, it's, it's up to them. And, and certainly this, um, kind of social media powered, uh, emotionally driven top set approach has led some younger lifters to do absolutely amazing things. Uh, do I think that it's sustainable over the long term? Um, I think that if there are not adaptations to that athlete's training program over time, it will lead to prolonged plateaus. Um, I think as you age, you won't be able to do that as often, right? Just the reality of aging. Um, and if you have a, an injury, uh, an injury that becomes recurring, then it's going to be difficult to train that way as well. But you could say the same things about a volume driven approach, right? Um, I, I'm fortunate to uh, coach Taylor Atwood, um, who is the number one ranked powerlifter uh, by any points formula in history. And um, I've trained him for almost a decade now. So from the from after his first competition uh, to now, I've, I've trained him throughout his entire career, uh, along with my colleague, Ben Esgro. And um, I've, I've gotten to see the changes, uh, in, in his body, uh, to, to reaching the peak and, and we hope to get back there and and continue on, of course. But, um, Taylor's unfortunately, as he became a dad and, you know, he's 34 and he's probably done, uh, at least 2 million kilos of volume total in his powerlifting career, which is more than, you know, yeah, more than almost. <laughs> it's pretty insane. Yeah, the, the, you start to ask yourself these questions: like, does Taylor need more volume? Right? Like, can his body handle more volume, or do we have to start to slice and dice the problem of improving his performance in a different way? And um, so, yeah, I, I'm not going to be on here saying that our, our volume driven approach is perfectly sustainable 
for the rest of your athletic career. I, I think there's going to come a point where it's going to help to get the best out of you, but then it's going to have to change. And um, right now we're really in that process of exploring how to optimize changing out of that approach into uh, something that will allow athletes who are older to continue to succeed. So what, what does that look like? I mean, how much reduced volume are you guys looking to make? Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's not like a, I think this is an iterative process. Um, when, when Taylor was like coming up, um, we had very consistent training. Uh, and so you could say that the last peak in volume that he hit, um, kind of we tie that to like we achieved this result after we hit this volume at this intensity so in the next prep let's try to do that volume for a few few more weeks before we deload or to increase that volume a little bit give them some progressive overload somehow right whether we extend the block or we do more volume in the block and after you have a period of of dealing with uh some injury issues. I, I think all that previous data uh, just becomes a neat historical fact. I, I you know, the, the fact that Taylor did um, 52,000 pounds of squat volume in a week uh, before uh, 2019 uh, USAPL Nationals is not relevant to how he's training today. That was almost four years ago, right? So, um we have to look at what he's done lately and, and then iterate on that. So you get into the question of, uh, well, what's he tolerating and, and how much training can we add? Um, how are his, how are his confidence levels doing? Uh, what other things do we need to work on in his program? Uh, maybe physical therapy concepts or, or whatnot. Uh, or muscles that we just need to develop to continue to push his lifts forward. Uh, and we we just iterate. And I so, yeah, I, I can't tie it to a statistic. Uh, maybe if we talk in a few years, we can. Um, I, I can tie it to an analogy, though, which was from um, Jordan Fagenbaum and Mike Desher. Uh I haven't listened to this podcast where they spoke it, but... Um, my mentor, Matt Gary, told it to me. And he, he basically, they're likening athletic development to an hourglass. And if you were to flip an hourglass on its side, you would have a wide end, a narrow middle, and then another wide end. And the width of the hourglass represents the amount of variability that you should be doing in training throughout your life if you are an athlete. So... In university, I studied uh, long-term athlete development. Uh, I had my bachelor's in health and physical education. So uh, really, if I wanted to go into teaching gym for younger kids, that's kind of what my university was structured towards. And um, When a, a kid is, is growing up, you want them to develop movement competence um, on, on land, air, ice, and in water so that at the very worst, uh, they're more likely to participate in physical activity in their future because they are competent. They're not going to avoid it. And at the very best, you know, maybe you have a kid who likes playing um, soccer and baseball. 
And so he's he's playing soccer and baseball, and he's kind of like these are the only two sports they really want to play. So your hourglass of, of specificity is getting closer. But then he decides, I want to be a soccer player, and he cuts out the baseball, and now he's only training to specialize in soccer. Uh, and I, I think when you are specializing for a sport, you are going to reach a peak where volume and, and intensity and special training methods will take your performance so far. But then aging, uh, career-altering lifestyle change, career-altering injury could force you to open that hourglass back up and start adding more variability back into the training. So, um, and, and this is because it is now necessary. You can't train as hard. You can't recover as fast. Uh, you have certain problems that you have to work around. And then as that hourglass continues to open back up, um, you know, that's, that's where we're exploring right now. What does this process look like for us? Um, but I, I do believe that, analogy to be true i like that analogy a lot right we want to get our young kids as into as many things as they possibly can and then as time goes on by their you know i think it's junior senior year of of high school we want to have them if they're going to select a sport that they have chosen that sport that they would then go to university and and compete with right um and then as we get older we we do end up leaving that sport and or, or we need to add in extra rehab and prehab and we have to look at all these other extra details that that end up overall it's more work but it's less work inside that specific sport right and and, and yeah. all these yeah. things are supporting that sport if i want to continue to compete in the sport right but ultimately i'm not necessarily just looking at the sport now i'm looking at what are my hips going to be like when I'm 60, right? I need to make sure that I can have this range of motion and these, these smaller intrinsic tissues healthy so that not only can I perform my squats now, maybe instead of three times a week, maybe once or twice a week, and also be able to play with my kids and sit at the desk and not hurt my body, right? And I think powerlifting is a really cool thing that it can continue to be um, done in the future as we continue to age. And it's still... And it encompasses, it allows people to focus on their their sleep and all these other habits that that ultimately benefit their life, um, both in the gym and then outside of in, in their daily lives. Yeah, uh, it definitely uh, becomes more punishing when your nutrition or sleep isn't on point, and then you get under a heavy barbell. It feels like a brick, right? If so, yeah. It feels pretty rough to be drinking and, and then try to go try to go squat something. It doesn't, doesn't feel too good, man. So it's different how, in the college days versus uh, in the 30s, and I can imagine in the 40s or 50s. So I guess we'll see when we get there. I mean, are there, but even then, you still have these these athletes. I forget his name um, that that are in their 40s and 50s still setting world records in, in the open category. That just it seems. There has to be, you know, if we can still be doing it at that age, then, you know, there, there's a method to this madness that allows us to still be healthy and compete well. Um, and finding what that is, is ultimately a, a long longitudinal study that ultimately you guys have the opportunity to because you have so many clients and you've been in existence for so long. Uh, yeah. Um, Dave Ricks and Jennifer Thompson. Uh, yes, thank you. Mind, uh, also, um, one of our group's new clients, John LaFlamme. Um, comes to mind as well. Just 
super strong people uh, in the in the masters category at different age brackets and um, still getting better, still performing at a really high level. I would say Susie Hartwick, Gary is in there too. So there's definitely examples of uh, elite masters level performers. And I think um, helping that audience is a fascinating challenge. Do, have you guys been involved? I mean, you, I know you mentioned a, a couple names there that you guys have, have helped. Um, but have you dealt with any of the older, uh, your older population clients? And, and what does it look like for volume for them? Um, so we're, we're, we're starting to work with more of them. Um, I would say really up until the last two years, um, the average age of our clientele kind of mirrors my age more. Uh, now we're starting to work with more younger competitors and more older competitors. I think because they've seen what we've achieved in the sport. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would say that like Dr. Uh, Pack's uh, PhD research on the minimum effective dose has to be very applicable, right? Uh, you want to find the minimum effective dose for these people to improve strength relative to where they are. And I mean, one set is the logical starting point, right? Like that's the lowest you could you could do. So uh, let's say theoretically doing one heavy set is enough to improve strength over time for someone. Then, uh, then you could add in two, and then you could add in three. Uh, but I think the the process for helping these people is you have to start by aiming for the minimum effective dose, and then from there you can iterate on it and monitor the athletes, see what they're tolerating, see how performance is, and and make your adjustments, and then start to get a better understanding of of how their performance actually responds to your training. I want to know more about this research study. So if afterwards you can send that to me, that'd be wonderful. I, or I can find it, I'm sure on, on scholar yeah, Google. Yeah. Um, but it does, I mean, it seems like a logical approach. And, and so does Dr. Pax work within uh, the strength guys? No, no. Uh, just a reference. Someone we really respect. Uh, he works. Um, he's at a university at Southampton. Um, he's currently doing a study on deloads and, um, he also works for, uh, team BioLane, uh, in the reps research review. I'm not sure if he's co-authoring that or if he authors the entire thing, but, uh, and I, I think he also works with stronger by science with Greg Knuckles too. So, wow. Very cool. So yeah. how did, because you mentioned the deloading, how does, when does somebody start a deload? I mean, how, like, there's so many different, you know, eight to 10 days out is kind of, I think, uh, uh, and when you take your last heavy squat day or bench day or deadlift day, right? What is the perception of the strength guys or what is Jason's perception? <laughs> there's a, there's a reaction there. So I want, I want to hear. Yeah. So I, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, um, in, in the past few weeks. And, um, I think, um, with a deload, you have numerous times when you when you might do it. One is, let's say, uh, training's going well. Um, you are four or five weeks out from your competition. You haven't deloaded in like three to five weeks. Are you going to just continue to train without dropping the volume and intensity significantly all the way until the competition? Or are you going to take a pit stop just to refuel, recharge the battery, and then do your final push 
right? So this is this is a scenario that's that's a really good one because you have options. Um, I think the safer way of doing things would say, let's do a pit stop because you don't want to be three weeks up from a meet and just absolutely buried by fatigue, right? So that's the first one. Um, second one is is you need it. Uh, maybe training was going fine for a few weeks, but then you had a week of bad readiness um, and training just buried you for whatever reason. You just feel really in the thick of it. Um, a deload week will help you to regenerate from that. And I think that this could also be lift specific. So uh, maybe my lower back is just getting really tired from all the squatting and deadlifting I'm doing. But bench press is great. Just train bench press through, and you could deload squat and deadlift. We can deload bench press when we need it. Um, and, and then I, I think there's just like a, a predetermined one. Like I, I think the longest block I would do for someone is eight weeks. That's a pretty long block, right? So uh, if it's been seven weeks of loading or eight weeks of loading without a deload, just say as a precaution you precautionary measure uh it's time so those are kind of my uh three scenarios of when i would deload uh in terms of how i would deload um drop volume by uh, half whether it's for one session or for a week and um reduce the uh rar based uh rpe by like one to two maybe the percentage by two and a half to five percent of the one rep max too I like your. Th- I like that. Yeah, I like the three. I mean, I think all it's it's a moving target. It's it's specific, and it's you know just safety right for the, the long term development of that athlete. I I like those a lot. Uh, um, I think that anybody can that can definitely use those. Eight weeks to be under load seems like hell to any athlete. I mean that that's a lot of a lot of volume, um, yeah. a lot of work for a long time. Um, I want to. What is the 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 perception of, or what is your perception of of power based training? Um, so we have hypertrophy strength, and then we have some power development, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at what point does a powerlifting athlete have to, if at all, incorporate the development of power? Yeah. Um, so we use daily undulating periodization. So on one day it could be targeting hypertrophy. Uh, on one day it could be targeting power. And on another day, could be targeting strength if we're training three lifts uh, or a lift three times uh, in one week. Um, I use power training sometimes. I'm not going to say I use it often. Um, Single effort power. So we're talking like singles at like 80%. And um, this should be very recoverable for you. Uh, It should allow you to uh, move the weight very quickly. And I think it's a heavy enough weight that if we continue to increase 80% up to 90%, this should transfer to how fast you're moving something like your opener, right? So I I think it's a transferable load as well. Um, And I will integrate that type of day um, as as a one-day deload. If I think someone needs a break or maybe their training scenario is not good because I think it's very recoverable but it's also still valuable practice. Uh, I may also integrate it if I am 
adding a day of training frequency in for an athlete. So um, when you add a day of training frequency in for a lift, that's the biggest increase in volume you're going to make realistically, you know, unless you're adding like three or four sets per movement. So you got to start light so that you're not spiking workload and, and causing some sort of overuse injury to flare up. Um, so I, I may say, okay, like someone's been squatting twice per week. Uh, maybe they're doing three sets of five at 80% on day one and uh, four sets of three at 85% on day two. Let's do um, our three sets of five at 80% on day one. I'll start them off at three to five sets of one at 80% on day two. And then we'll do our triples at 85% on day three. And let's ramp intensity from there. So it's basically putting in that third day of training, but very, very light, like very recoverable, uh, very light stress demands. Um, so that's another scenario when I would do it. I think um, another scenario is when I've had to teach athletes to exert themselves fully under the barbell. Um, <laughs> it's... Uh, it's hard to call attempts in a meet when someone's opener is moving slower than their third attempt, right? And you think, why would that happen? <laughs> um, it's because they're not moving the weight as fast as they can. And and sometimes a cue is not enough. I, it's not just me saying you need to go faster. Some people don't understand that, right? You need to put them in actual training scenarios where they could start moving the weight quickly, whatever that weight may be and then wrap it up so that it becomes more specific and transferable. So those are the um, three scenarios where I would use power training and where I have to use power training. I like them. I like that a lot. I think teaching, especially new athletes, what it is to, to move fast underneath the bar or move aggressively underneath the bar is insanely useful knowledge and, and it teaches them a lot. I mean, and we've seen that 80%, I mean, it's a good, it's a good number to use. And I don't know if you, you I mean, it, I would assume that, you know, that, you know, um, we've seen through a lot of research that 80% is the, is the point where we have our, our peak power without a decrement in, um, in technique. Right. So 80% is a solid number. I think Dr. Blazler and Dr. Uh, Dr. Stone out of East Tennessee were the ones who did that research there. So um, some, some, a, a valid number indeed. Uh, and so meat day stuff, I mean, how does somebody look at, you know, I think there's, there's a rule of thumb that I remember it was your first attempt should be something that you can triple, right? Something that can be safely done for a set of three. Um, maybe your, your second attempt is a, um, is something that, it was your top set single in, in training in, in your block, right. And throughout your training cycle. And then your third attempt is the one that we are going for. Right. Yeah. What is, what is the, the, what is your, your take on, on attempt selections? Yeah. Um, so first of all, the weightlifting methods of attempting strategy does not transform. It does not transfer well into powerlifting. Um, if you are taking your second attempt at or like, you know, within one or two percent of your PR, most of the time that means that you're probably not going to make your third attempt. And this the stats back that up. Um I think the number was sixty-three percent 
of all competitors. I, I don't remember if this was men or women. I, I think it was, it was men at the IPF World Championships, the highest level of the sport, missed their third attempts this last year. Like oh my god! That's crazy. So you, that's you insane. That you're like, okay, well, if I if I'm in the 37 <laughs> percent of competitors that made my third attempt, then I gained I gained ground on all of the competitors who missed. Right. Yeah. So you've only got nine bullets in your gun, and you want to use every bullet on meet day. You don't want to miss, and you don't want to max out on your second either, because um, unless you have superhuman work capacity. If you have to grind a second, you fail a third, you got bench after, and then you got a deadlift, and you end up like grinding a second deadlift, you're not going to have a lot of energy for your third attempt, right? You just simply went too heavy, and you are mentally and physically exhausted by the end of the day. And so the strategy of um, attempt selection that I employ is uh, from Matt Gary. Uh, Matt is... Uh, one of my valued friends and mentors. Um, and he's actually, his book is coming out very soon. He literally wrote the book on how to coach powerlifting meets. And, and I think it's coming out in like the next two weeks. Very cool. Um, opened around, usually your best triple is like 90 to 92% of your, um, of your one or a maximum. And then uh, take a second attempt, 94 to 96%. Uh, and then take what's there on the third attempt. And Matt Gary likens it to the Price is Right, where you've got three chances to spin the wheel without going over 100. You want to get as close to 100 without going over. Otherwise, you get nothing. And I know on Price is Right, they only have two wheel spins. But uh, it's it's kind of the mentality that I think a powerlifting coach needs to have. So um, I don't call limit lifts in competition unless I have to, because it, there's very few athletes on my roster I would call a limit lift for too, because they have to have the technique and the psychology to rise to the occasion to do that. You may be strong enough to squat X many kilos, but are you going to be able to execute when the pressure's on you are you going to cut depth on that or are you going to do it properly? Like there's a lot of unknowns with that. And I'm a probability player in, in powerlifting competitions. So uh, my attempt selection will be whatever I think your limit is minus two and a half or five kilos. That's their attempt. Cause that way we make it, we still have energy and competence heading into the remainder of the meet. And I think this has just been a better placing way of competing. So uh, actually, I track all my client results. And uh, since 2021, um, my clients have made over 90% of their attempts. And that's like, I think, 102 performances now. So, Wow. I mean, that's that's impressive. That is cool. Um, and so, and I do want to clarify, though my, my master's is, is specifically in the, the world of, of weightlifting, I competed at IPF Worlds um, two different times, and my, my background is more of the powerlifting, the, the powerlifting world. And so, though that the, the, my master's focus on that space, I think that my experience in the sport, I mean, I, I like the mentality and I like your approach. Um, 
I think it's just a little bit different than, than my approach with my athletes. Um, but obviously what you're doing is successful, right? It, it obviously works. Um, and so it's just, it, it's nice to hear, uh, your perspective on, on how to navigate that, um, yeah. that field. Everybody's a little bit different. And, and so how does, how, but how do you, how do you gauge what two and a half or five kilos looks like of their, their limit max, right? Yeah. Yeah. This, this goes back to, uh, power, right? So, um, in velocity based training, uh, and an athlete is a good candidate for using velocity based training in powerlifting. If whenever I add X many kilos, so let's say, uh, whenever I add 10 kilos onto the bar, it produces 0.03 meter per second decrease in speed compared to the last rep, right? And, and if you had that pattern from, you know, a 10 kilo barbell all the way up to your 1RM, and it was like perfect, whenever I add 10 kilos, I lose this much speed, you would have a perfect correlation between yeah. adding 10 kilos and losing speed. And that means that you could actually predict your 1RM with really good accuracy uh, using velocity-based training. Uh, and I think it would mean that you're a very good candidate for prescribing training load by saying, I want you to do five reps in the range of 0.3 to 0.4 meters per second uh, on back squat instead of saying percent one RM. Yeah. Well, if you have a competitor whose opener is slower than their second and their second is faster in the opener, but slower in their third, you have no idea how to predict what that person has in them, right? You're, you're, you're watching this and you're like, why are you getting faster? As I add <laughs> more? Um, so you need to see a decrease in speed. So uh, actually like I'm, I'm looking at the person and I'm running a load velocity regression in my head. I'm like, how much more do I think they have? And I, I, before I coach in a competition, I, I try to memorize the way their heaviest lifts moved in their last heavy session. So I can kind of gauge performance there versus what I'm seeing now. Um, I think another one is, is you have to look at the technique. Like uh, if, if I have an athlete who just bombs death on their opener, they go way too deep. And then on their second attempt, they do that again. I'll be like, eh, like their depth is really volatile today. And maybe I should be, an extra two and a half kilo conservative on the third because their technique does not look locked in. Maybe in a perfect world, she can squat 180, but 177 is a better call today. It's higher probability. So um, the third thing I'm, I'm considering is also what the, what the scenario is. Um, I try not to call attempts based on what other competitors are doing in most cases until we get to deadlift, because that's when we're determining the final order of placings. But if I have a competitor who needs to maximize their total on squat and bench press, then I may push them closer to the limit on those lifts. Um, or if we're competing for like a, an individual medal at Worlds or something, then we may push it a little bit more. Do you Are you handling people like Taylor Atwood and going to the meets and, and you know handling your athletes? Uh, yeah, it, it's, 
it's something I would honestly like to do more of. I, I do go to the competitions. Uh, I've been attending competitions for um, for nine years now. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a really important part of our job because I, I think we're really judged on two things. One is, did we make our competitors stronger in the meet? And two, how did we do with preventing serious injury? Right. So those are the two outcomes that we have to uh, really ace to justify our value to the client. And you could have a great training cycle. And if you call attempts bad on meet day or meet day goes wrong, it won't represent your work well. So I, I think it's a really important part of um, kind of putting the finishing touches on all of the hard work that we've done. I like it. Um, how does somebody get in touch with, with Jason and the strength guys. I don't even know what time, what time are we at? Almost. Okay. Not, not very far. So what, what kind of, um, how does somebody get in touch with, with the strength guys? Like, can we just message you on, on, on Instagram? I also have another question about form, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They can, uh, follow us on Instagram at the strength guys. Uh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash the strength guys. Uh, and our website is www.thestrengthguys.com. Um, I'm not currently accepting clients, but uh, if anyone is interested and uh, would like to speak to one of our coaches, uh, we do have many coaches who are taking clients on, and we can introduce you. Even though that was kind of like a, we're going to do a mid mid podcast plug, okay? So then that, I have another question about how do you guys mitigate um, being able to push somebody into a new one rep max, right? Meet day or, and, and still not put that client or athlete at, at risk of, of injury. I mean, we, we, there's a lot of yeah. injuries that are involved and then getting to that point, you don't really know what's going to break down. Right. So then how do you guys maintain the biomechanic efficiency of an athlete? Yeah. Um, this is a very involved question because, uh, athletes are adaptive organisms uh, no one prep is going to be the same. Um, you could have a program that went really well last time, but now maybe the athlete is using their lower back a little bit more on squat, and that's causing an increase in recovery times uh, that's affecting the deadlift training negatively, and you're four weeks out and you don't have time. That's the problem you got to solve, and you got to problem solve because it ain't what you did in the past, right? Going back to that is is not applicable in this scenario. So um, we're constantly dealing with shifts in the athlete state, uh, evolution of of what they need to um, progress, and um, I think the fundamentals are are load management. Um, so. In a competition prep, I think that's when you're most likely to get hurt, right? You're trying to peak performance and you're pushing it. So having a deload every now and then is a good idea. I think also um, technique is really important. So um, Susie Hartwig, Gary gave me this rule and I, I loved it. It's just uh, if your form breaks down on one rep and you can't fix it by the next rep, you have to stop the set. And then... From there, if you have to do that, you can perform missed lifts as an extra set or two after your work sets, right? You can get the work in, but with greater quality. Um, 
I think also prescribing training further away from failure could help to reduce the risk a little bit, but not really of overuse injury, uh, more so of like, you know, uh, if we're training at RP9 and someone's lower back is like flexing and rotating on a deadlift, well, that's not a, a suitable training load. Yeah. Um, I think managing volume uh, to an extent is is good uh, because I do believe there is a specific dose of volume uh, and intensity required to get stronger, but there is also a toxic dose of volume and intensity, right? If you overdo it, you're not going to get stronger. And if you underdo it, if you don't train with enough volume or intensity, you're not going to be prepared for when you have to train with volume and intensity. So I think if you underdose it or if you overdose it, you're going to run into trouble, right? So uh, this, this is our iterative process of watching an athlete train and adjusting their program over time by looking at their data, uh, looking at their videos um, to kind of find this sweet spot range of where they seem to be responding best to training. And then we try to scale that and iterate on that uh, moving forward. So um, I think during the competition prep, those are uh, the big ticket items for preventing injury. Uh, another one that I would add is uh, better athlete decision-making and better flexibility in a training program. So um, if an athlete shows up to training tired and really sore, and now they're having to compensate because of their soreness and move differently, you should probably just train that lift tomorrow, right? It's just a safer way of going about things. Um, if the athlete has to train under those conditions, but it's probably not ideal to do the prescribed training, how can they modify it to still have a productive training session? So providing them with other options to be flexible I mean, how often are you communicating with your athletes? I mean, this is, I mean, you're, you're communicating with your athletes. It sounds like, I mean, daily, I mean, daily, right. But then also in extreme detail, I mean, and, and changing it on the fly. Yeah. Usually once per week, I try to develop systems so that during the week, the athlete is supplied with the instructions and the knowledge to make these decisions themselves. Um, of course, it would be ideal if I could just watch all of them train in real time and help them make these calls, but I can't. So I try to give them my logic as they go to the gym, wherever they are. Um, and then, yeah, if something comes up in the middle of the week, I, I definitely encourage them to let me know immediately, too, so we can modify. Do you guys have your own like app or is it like a WhatsApp kind of thing? Are you doing group me kind of thing? Um, so when I first started, this was like Taylor Atwoods and I, uh, it was our second year working together. Um, it was going to be our first world championship and we wanted to leave no stone unturned. Um, I was kind of operating on a hunch that having data of what he was doing in training would be really important. So I taught myself how to use Microsoft Excel. And I built a, a system that we now call our athlete management system. So basically we write our training in a really nice looking printable sheet. And off to the side of that, uh, I have a bunch of formulas that read the sheet and extract data from it. And then we track it in the data table over time. 
And um, I'm now building out the seventh edition of that. So we've just been iterating on this Excel system or this Google Sheet system over and over again. Um, I've used it now as my working platform for nine years. So I've experienced its peaks and, and also the areas where uh, we need to improve it and just constantly trying to make it better. Um, there are some amazing uh, apps out there too. Uh, my strength book, especially, it's a company I used to work for as well. Uh, Very cool. It's an awesome product for uh, online strength and physique coaches. I, I highly recommend it. Um, but for us, it's really important to have that ownership over our working platform so that we can continue to be innovative uh, rather than requiring someone else to be. Rather than being dependent on on them pushing a boundary, not being satisfied, you guys get to control yeah. what you want to change. It definitely is nice. I, I, I did the same thing with learning the Excel and, and taking classes and figuring out, you know, I, I like the class and YouTube and all that stuff um, and figuring out, you know, what formulas are going to make it best so that I can create this, this, uh, this automatic system that I can give somebody that I can pull data from and then ultimately make their next blocker system, you know, what, the next iteration that much better. Right. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. a fun, it's a fun process. It's also sometimes very um, uh, irritating at times when you just doesn't get what you really, really want. Um, or, you know, it just, it's variable, well, but it's, it's fun. It's gotten a lot better with uh, ChatGPT uh, since that's come out. Um, I have some formulas and sheets are like eight lines long, like they're like a paragraph, and and uh, maybe I misplaced a bracket somewhere in there, and there's like fifty brackets. Um, <laughs> so it's like, where did I misplace the bracket? And, and before ChatGPT, I would have to go through and manually test. I would have to go through bracket one, two, three, four, five, and see which one was working. And uh, now I could just copy that eight-line formula, put it in there, and say, where did I misplace the bracket? I'm getting this error. And then it will fix it for me. So uh, it's been a very helpful tool. Um, I also use a service um, called the Excel Chat uh, Concierge Service. It's a, a team of dedicated spreadsheet experts, Pam, 50 to 150 US to uh, code me some advanced problem that makes our coaching systems better. So no way. Uh, it would save me like 20 to 30 hours of figuring that out myself. And I, I highly value them. That's a really cool tool that I am going to steal from you i like that a lot that's it saves all uh, (laughs) hopefully um an army of strength and conditioning coaches will uh uh, go to them and and give them business because they deserve it well good for them and and it's a skill that i definitely don't want to have to learn right it's it's hard to know all these things and as a business owner it i mean you have to learn to delegate so much and, and find these new resources to ultimately save you some time. And, and, and talking to so many different business owners though, I mean, I talked to a lot of coaches and athletes. Um, you're also somebody who's, who's gone through the struggle of creating a, and, and, and seeing through a business and, and that itself is its own challenge that people I don't think can always appreciate. So, I mean, you, you said a little while ago at the, at the very beginning, there was a time where you guys were, you thought about folding it. I mean, yeah. why did you get, why was that the occurrence and then why did you not? Yeah. Um, 
I think the success of our group is largely tied to um, whether or not we've been able to win uh, with our with our clients, um, because I think competitive powerlifters want to win, and if they're not winning, they want to get the advantages they need to win, right? And I think that kind of determines the coaching landscape to a, a large extent of who's hiring who. And um, yeah, we weren't getting the results. Like we were a good second place team, but we were kind of underperforming and and not able to uh, win our first world championship. And uh, really when um, Taylor Atwood run won uh, his first world title in uh, 2017 in Calgary, in my hometown. Um, that process is, it really changed things for us. And ever since then, like year after year, we've had our best year in business. Um, as Taylor has continued to do very well, I think um, many other lifters have caught on that uh, our process is working for him and, and they want to have this process as well. And I just think it's very influential for people. So, um, yeah, during our, our dark days, um, we weren't pulling the results. I kind of felt lost with, um, with how to get the results. And thankfully, um, with the help of, of Ben Esgro and, and others, we were able to, uh, really resolve that problem and, and get the ship steered in the right direction. And congratulations. I mean, it, it, it's a, you know, it's, it's, you know, we were, we were talking about earlier about the, the, the issues maybe that, that, that social media can bring, but it's also obviously the, the beauty that it brings as well. It, it gave you guys an opportunity to have, to have a space for, for a marketing department that you don't really need to, to almost pay for. Right. It's, yeah. it, it gives the opportunity for someone who is just starting off, maybe their own coaching business, their own, their own space that they can, you know, really, do something so long as it's, it's, it's a valuable product. Right. Um, and then you have people that, that support it and then we'll continue to, to feed into it. Um, how did, so I, I know you said you, 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 you've been in this, this, the strength and conditioning space for a little bit, but how, why, why choose powerlifting? Why, why go this route? Yeah. Um, being a powerlifting coach is uniquely exciting. I would imagine that weightlifting uh, coaches and and also track and field discipline coaches feel the same way um, where the work that we do with an athlete we're we're part of the competition on the platform of, of course it's the athlete who has to execute and and um, has to do the the bulk of the work but uh, it's still it's my training strategy that I gave them that's out there and um it's my call to make uh on their on their third attempt that's going to be make or break our meat like it's you know it's i feel in the game whereas in sports in team sports and field sports um the strength and conditioning coach can have a, a world-class offseason with the team but if the team isn't in sync on the field or on the ice, uh, their passes are off, their timing's off, they're not remembering plays, it doesn't matter. It could still be the worst team in history, right? So there's not that transfer of what you're doing into the gym, into competition. 
as directly. Whereas in powerlifting, it's like, you know, if you get stronger at squat bench and deadlift in the gym, you should get stronger on meet day. So like, we're there, like we're in it. I just find it very exciting. Did you compete in, in team sport and in powerlifting? I, uh, I tried team sports growing up. I, I tried everyone, uh, and never really stuck. Actually, the, um, the longest sports I played were, um, golf. I've, I've been a lifelong golfer, uh, probably since I was like five. Uh, and then wow. I curled for like a decade, uh, as well. Um, and that's I cool and, and i i did compete in uh natural bodybuilding too but i would say I, I always had an inclination towards um individual sports for whatever reason i think individual sports is is you're not dependent on the on hopefully the other individual you know not drinking the night before or taking care of themselves or it is you step on that platform and all the work that you did is you know it, it's right there it's represented and ideally, you know, if you did everything right, and, and even then, sometimes even then, you do everything right, and it's still not what it, you thought it was going to be on that on that meet day, right? You just you never know, but but if you can create a system, then you can have a pretty damn good idea that once you get on meet day, you are going to to the work is going to prove itself, right? Yeah. And and it, it's. I think it's the best form of competition. It's, it's kind of a one V one, but it's also like a competition within yourself and keeps you honest and keeps uh, all, all other people around you honest. I mean, it's, it's a fun learning process and a, and a beautiful sport. And I think it's going to continue to grow and you got, I mean, you guys are right there with it and it, it's cool that, you know, you guys are, I, I, you know, Kabuki strength and you have all these like the LEFTS, you have these huge um, powerhouses as well. And it sounds like you guys are, are structuring yourselves to, to go down that route. So in, in you guys also, I mean, you guys have a lot of, of the, the physical, the physical portion of it, right? The, the training, the, there's a lot of intellectual property around there as well, but what is it? Are you guys looking to get into to, to products or, or um, materials or like a, the lot, your own velocity-based stuff? Like what does it look like in the future for the strength guys? Yeah, I want to – so as, as an employer, um, I've seen – I felt this myself too. Um, I got a bachelor's degree in exercise science and uh, I thought that was going to prepare me wonderfully for coaching – bodybuilding and powerlifting but it didn't prepare me at all (laughs) so you spend all that money and all that time to get the general knowledge but then you still have to get the knowledge to to do what you want to do yeah and i i think that um coaching powerlifting is almost like a trade it's almost like cabinet making you know if you if you want to be a cabinet maker a, a carpenter you don't go to university to get your bachelor's in biology of the forest and then expect to to be a woodworker, right? You go to a a technical institute for one to two years and you get the specific instruction that you need on this, what you need to know about wood and this is what you need to know about the tools and this is how you do it. And then you get practical experience with it. um, I think powerlifting coaching is like a trade. I I do. And um, I would like to build uh, the education program that I would like people who will work for 
PSG in the future to have, uh, and that I would value higher than a, a bachelor's degree or a master's degree because it's more specific. It's everything that you need to know to be the best powerlifting coach that you can be. So um, we're in the process of iterating on that. Um, we also had a, a brilliant um, PhD student from Italy uh, reach out to us. Uh, his name's Enrico Roma, uh, and he works out of J.B. Morin's lab. And um, Enrico wants to help us find the dose-response relationship between volume and intensity with one or other improvements in training. And he's a, a, a statistics guy, so um, he's going to help us build a database which analyzes all of our training uh, everything you know you consider we have 250 plus athletes training in the company uh, at wow. any point in time uh, analyzing all of that for years on end uh, and the possible knowledge that we're going to gain from this so uh, building a database to study our training and continue to improve our methods is something that's uh, on our radar and um, yeah those are really the the two main projects in addition to um continuing to do great things on the coaching side. I love it. Well, I, I definitely appreciate your time. I am going to, going to, I'm going to play this, this audio outro real quick as it's going to take us out. I'm going to end the, I'm going to end the recording and then I'm going to talk to you afterwards. Um, but before we get off the, the, the call or the, the recording, any one thing that you would like to leave, leave our, our guests or listeners or people tuning in, you have, you have the platform. It, it is all yours. You can say whatever and do whatever you want for the next, you know, you, you have your time. All right. Um, yeah, I, I would just say thank you for listening and um, feel welcome to reach out personally to me, Jason TSG on Instagram or uh, Jason at strengthguys.com via email. Uh, if you have any questions about what we talked about in the episode, Thank you for listening to the Ben Navarro's podcast. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, and all other major podcast hosting platforms. Be sure to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. 